Welcome to another episode of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. Joining me and Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Consolidated and Matthew Fairburn of The Athletic is Sal Mayorana, author of 20-something books, most recently when Buffalo sat atop the sports world, which uh, is for sale now. Oh, Jonah has it there if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, uh, So that's uh, Sal's latest book. Uh, talking about Buffalo sports in the 70s, and uh, it's pretty self-explanatory when you look at the covers. Gilbert Perot, O.J. Simpson, and uh, the Braves. Uh, and uh, I, I, although I don't recall, I don't have it here in front of me. Who is it? Is it McAdoo? Is yeah, it, Bob uh, McAdoo. Yeah, Bob McAdoo on the cover. Um, Sal, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tim. It's a pleasure to be one of the friends. Oh, come on. You know you're one of the friends. <laughs> Anybody who gets invited for post-game beers is one of the friends. Well, I guess that's true. I just and, see all that. I and see you've been that. known to invite me once or twice, too, so I, I have a feeling you're not faking it. I see all you Buffalo guys commingling in everything you do, and I just feel left out here in Rochester. You know, I got no buddies anymore. Leo Roth's gone, so I'm all by my lonesome here in Rochester. Yeah, that's uh... – and what's this like? What's this like for you? Because you come in from Rochester, or in a normal world, you'd come in and, and cover the team. Now everybody's satellite, so you could be Sal Mayorana of the um, Des Moines Register covering the Bills uh, this year. Well, what's it? What's it been like for you with the yeah, Rochester I, Democrat and Chronicle? Look, I'm like you guys. I I don't like this at all. It's been a tough year. I would much rather be making the drive twice a week to Buffalo. And being there, being in the locker room, being with you guys, I miss being with all the guys. And then you, it's just hard to cover a team. I, I was I was sick of the Zoom calls, guys, probably in August. I'd already gotten sick of them. And now here we are. It's our life. We do it four times a week. It's been frustrating. You can't, you know, you can't really do, um, well, I can't as an everyday beat guy. It's very tough to do a developed story. I mean, I got to produce stuff every single day. I have no help because we're down to two sports writers. So I can't really, you know, get into a guy and really do a nice story. I just take all these sound bites that we get off these zooms and you try to work with what you get. But, you know, I wish I had more time to be able to, you know, work on a story for three days and make it a good reader. You know, like the stuff you guys do at the athletic. So it's been tough, but Hey, we're all in it. And, you know, what are you going to do? Covering the team from my bedroom here, my office bedroom, certainly has saved my car. And, uh, you know, I can wear shorts and T-shirts every day. So that's been cool. You did anyways. Well, not always. Not always. I'm not exactly the best dresser of the beat guys. But, uh, you know, you're not going to find me in a tie on Sunday afternoon like some of our younger brethren, Tim, who like to show up and show off their duds. (laughs) I only wear my tie, the wooden tie. That's the only one I'll wear. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, I, Sal and I we're neither of us are fashion plates, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah. I'd have to go with, you know, Jonah Jonah low keys it, but he always has some some splash to it, you know. He always he wears shirts to make a statement, right? And he's got a print shirt on. I think I think Jonah and Matthew actually do uh put a put thought into what they're wearing. Occasionally. Yeah, less so as the years have gone on. Not that that's a sin. I, I no, just, it's... I just think among the four people here who are on this, uh, who are doing this podcast. Yeah, I don't know if you know this. Put some thought into it. Matthew is certainly the most fashionable. He's also the youngest. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not real impressed by his sock game. <laughs> I mean, there are others on the beat that you know really put some thought into the socks they wear. Um, so I've never been a sock guy, but. Other, other, other than that, Matt usually shows up, you know, very well produced in the press well, box. You know, some of us aren't as naturally handsome as you, Sal, so we need to work extra hard to, to you know, meet your standard in the yes, press that, box. That, that, that may have been the case 30 years ago, but that is no longer the case, as you could see on my <laughs> visage here. This is a, a fantastic uh, segue because uh, I follow Sal on Facebook, as I'm guessing probably you guys do too. And when Sal posts photos of his family, I think to myself, how the hell did he pull that off? <laughs> you must have been handsome at some point in your life. 
Well, you know, I, Tim, I've been told that I was a handsome young man. Um, I don't know what's that. Well, I know what's happened. <laughs> you know, I've gained a hundred pounds probably. And that's, you know, but yeah, I've got three great kids, beautiful wife. She's mostly responsible for how my kids look, by the way. So uh, yeah, thank you very much for pointing that out. They are great kids. This is Sal Mayorana of the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle and author of uh, not only When Buffalo Sat Atop the Sports World, but uh, the, the reference book that if you're a Bills fan, you should have uh, on your shelf, Relentless, uh, which goes back a ways. You still see it for sale in bookstores. Is it, so is it still in print? Honestly, I don't know because the company that published it has been out of business for a long time. I, I know you can get it on Amazon and eBay, all those places. But if you were trying to get a freshly printed copy, it's, you probably can't. Okay. Because um, yeah, I can swear I still see it on shelves for sale. Which is kind of sad since it's 30 years old. <laughs> you would have hoped they would have sold by now. But yeah, you know what's funny? I still see that book and, and people are still, I, I had a guy who was probably two years ago at training camp who showed up at training camp lugging that five pound book with him because he wanted me to sign it. He tracked me down and I signed it. So that's, that book was published in 1994. So that's pretty cool that it's kind of still around. Matthew gave me a plug when you guys did the books um, in the athletic there, uh, you know, the definitive book. So it was fine. I did a, I did an update five years after the first one. So I've actually got the first 40 years of every game they played covered, but then the last 20, I've kind of decided that it wasn't worth it. So <laughs> I'll let right. one and two sit by themselves. Well, okay. So we're in a new era of Bill's football. Two playoff berths in the last three years. It's almost certainly going to be three out of four. Um, an expectation of making the playoffs after 17 years of futility. Um, so I wanted to get into this topic today because uh, there was a lot of pushback and I rightfully so. I mean, yes, the story that I wrote after last night's game, it had an, it, it wasn't um, optimistic. I, I wouldn't say it's negative because it was based, it's based on the numbers and the numbers say that if you're five and two uh, at this stage of the season, you have 67% chance of making the playoffs. Although under the previous format, it was pretty much every year there were teams that were starting five and two and not making it. But if you're five and two and have a negative point differential, uh, you are, I think the record is five and 14 or something like that uh, in NFL history of making the playoffs. Five, if you start five and two, but have been outscored up until that point, Things are going to turn for you. Things are going to come back to normal, crash back to earth. And only five of those 19 teams went on to make the playoffs. So my point being, the Bills are comfortably in first place in the AFC East. There's an extra playoff team this year, an extra wildcard team. So they're going to make it, uh, barring colossal collapse. But if you're a Bills fan and you've made it to the playoffs two of the last three years, is just winning the AFC East enough? Or don't you need to win a game or two? And to that point, who would the Bills be favored against in the playoffs? Kansas City, no. Tennessee, no. Pittsburgh, no. Baltimore, no. Uh, the Cleveland, if Cleveland gets in, yeah, probably. Indianapolis, if Indian, uh, they already beat Vegas, if Vegas gets in. But the way it looks right now, the based on the way the Bills are playing – struggling to beat the Jets, they would not be favored against all but two AFC playoff teams, as it looks right now, pretty much halfway into the season. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Look, I, I'm not a big proponent of point differential. I get it in, in the numbers you just recited, that they, they prove something. But, you know, let's face it, one game skewed the point differential. They played horrible against the Titans. Now in five of the other six games, they won <laughs> and they lost by nine points to a chiefs team that I think is markedly better than them. So I don't put a whole lot of stock in point differential, especially seven weeks in, because I think that can self-correct at some point. It should have self-corrected yesterday. They should have blown the jets out and got back on the positive side, but well, that's, that yeah, it should self-correct. They've got two wins over an Owen seven jets team. So right. it's, 
So that helps. That helps correct. Yeah, they've played the worst team in football twice. That, like by far the worst team in football, probably. What did they so, beat them the first time by seventeen? I think it was. No, it was like ten, wasn't it? It was twenty-seven to twenty-seven, seventeen. That's right. Something like that. Um, right, so it should have been better. Anyways, my point is, I think some of that kind of you know ebbs and flows during the year. What I look at is they do have five wins in seven games. They need to play a whole lot better in the final nine because it really is going to get tough. They have, they don't have a single game that you would consider. Yeah, the Bills are going to win that. I mean, every game from here on out, I think, on the schedule is going to be well. This has to happen, and this has to happen to win. They've got a really tough road. So, I'm not totally convinced they're the best team in the division, guys. I'm not, not yet. I think it's too early to know. You know, let's see, let's see them when they start playing the Cardinals, the Seahawks. I think the Steelers are going to kick their ass when they play them. I think they have no chance against that team. So we'll see. One yeah, note on the – oh, go, go ahead, ahead I just wanted to add with the point differential statistic, there are some different context things. As you mentioned, that Titans is 26 of the points that lost, and there's garbage time scoring in there that maybe hurts the Bills. But if you break it down another way, break it down by quarter, the Bills have been outscored in 14 of the 28 quarters. They've had the advantage in 11 of the quarters tied in three. I think it's similar if you do it by half. So the Bills haven't had really a complete game or a game where they were better than the other team on the other side of the ball, even the Jets, for all four quarters. And I think that's probably a concerning thing. Yeah, even the Miami Dolphins, who they're going to have to play against uh, one more time, uh, totally different team with Tua Tagovailoa as the quarterback, or at least you'd assume they, they're going to be a different team. And, and maybe, uh, I don't know if that's going to make them a tougher out or an easier out, but uh the Bills did not close out the Dolphins when they had the opportunity down in Miami. Um, so, Sal, you mentioned it. you're not sure if uh, if the Bills are the best team in the AFC East. Is that who you're referring to? Is Miami or I think I think Miami has got a chance. I probably should walk that back. They probably are top to bottom the best roster in the AFC East. But you look at the schedules. I just think the Bills. I think the Bills are going to have a tough time to get to ten wins. I really do. I mean, ten might be enough. To win the division, probably will. But look at look at the last nine games. They'd have to go five and four. And like I said, there's not a single layup in there. I think it's going to be a difficult road. Ten might be enough, though. Probably will be. Yeah, I think ten will be enough to get the division. And there's enough winnable games, uh, even if, like you said, they're not they don't get the Jets anymore, so they don't get the layups. Um, and the Dolphins, they play in the final week of the season. So even if Tua has a, you know, a rough transition, you would think by week 17, he's going to be a little bit more um, you know, comfortable and, and situated in that offense. Denver looks like a fairly easy game, but it's on the road. And you know, Denver's a tough place to play. That team beat New England. They, they have their moments. Uh, the Chargers uh, look like you know, a, a dangerous team with their rookie quarterback, but should be a winnable game. The Patriots don't look that great, uh, you know. So I guess there's a lot of teams on the schedule that if the Bills are what everybody says they are and if the Bills are what people think they are or what they looked like in the first month of the season, there's a lot of games on this schedule that they should win. But I think to your point, there's not a lot of games on the schedule. There's no no Bengals. There's no Jaguars. Uh, there's no more Jets. There's, um, you know, fewer of these. There's no Texans who look like a, a cakewalk, a team that knocked them out of the playoffs last year. So... They're going to have some some tough games, uh, some really tough games against top-notch teams. And, and frankly, they're going to have the – regardless of what the rest of the schedule says, if they get to the playoffs, those are the types of teams that you play against. And I think at this point, you know, seven games in, you just look at this team and wonder, are they capable of making a run? Uh, it's now three straight weeks that teams have slowed down Josh Allen in the passing offense, and he's no longer creating big plays down the field. The defense has looked spotty throughout the season. They had a good half yesterday against the Jets, you know, bravo. Uh, you know, they made Sam Darnold look like Sam Darnold. But, you know, is this a team that can make a run? Is this a team that can keep up with a good quarterback? Right now, I would I would say no. I don't think they can. And there's a lot of time for them to change that opinion. There's a lot of time for them to get their act together and play their best football at the perfect time. Uh, you know, we've seen some, you know, lesser teams make runs, but um, with the way that their defense has been inconsistent and the way that their quarterback seems to have been figured out a little bit here, I, I just don't see the, you know, if you can't score a touchdown against the jets, 
I don't know. It's uh, it, it says something about your offense, I think. Man, what do you think about comparing them to last season? I think through seven games, this team is about as good, maybe may better. I don't know if there's really a big difference between how they performed in starting out five and two last year. But the Bills got better, I think, in the second half of the season, especially Josh Allen and the offense. I mean, do you expect that kind of progression, or is there any reason either one of you guys that look at this year's team and not think that they'll get it together the way they did last winter? I think – look, I think the offense, they've had to adjust to what teams have done the last three weeks. Now, yesterday, because they're playing a lousy team. I understand that. But I don't know. Did I go overboard given the Jets – I mean, given the Bills passing game an A yesterday on my report card? I mean, maybe. I, I mean, I, I know the Jets – I think so. They didn't score any touchdowns. He threw for, you know, Josh Allen threw for 300 yards, which everybody was, you know, patting him on the back for, but he's no longer pushing the ball down the field because teams are taking it away. I think the passing offense was fine. I think it was a perfectly replacement level game from the passing offense. You know, they didn't do much special uh, and they didn't score touchdowns. You can't beat hardly anybody in this league scoring 18 points. You can beat the jets and they did. But the last three weeks, we're talking about 16, 17, 18 points. And yes, you know, to Jonah's point, they can improve. They've shown before that that they can make adjustments in season and become a better team. I think this is probably a better team than it was last year because the passing offense has shown that it has uh, a level in it that they didn't have last year. You know, the way they played in the first month of the season uh, is a completely different offense than they had at any point during last year. So if they can get back to that uh, or even close to it, this is a better team regardless of how the defense plays because you need to score points to keep up. And if you're not converting your drives into touchdowns, then um, that's a problem, especially against a team that was handing out touchdowns um, to much lesser teams than the Bills early in the season. Yeah, I, I get I get. You're right. I mean, they got to score a touchdown. I, I guess what I liked yesterday was the fact that he only – he threw two balls that I think we all would agree he shouldn't have thrown. They probably would have been picked off by – a better team. But other than that, I mean, he was 30 of 43. He was mostly patient, which is a step in the right direction for Josh Allen. Um, they did a good job. I think the jets of limiting what Stefan Diggs can do without John Brown. And he took what was there. He utilized Cole Beasley very well. Um, I liked that part of it. We had, to me last year, yesterday's game, Josh Allen would have found a way to turn the ball over more times than the sack fumble that he did. He would have been forcing the issue, um, trying to take things that weren't there. And I liked, I guess I liked that part of the game. Uh, and again, not having John Brown, I think that really has impacted, not that he's a great receiver, but I think he's one more guy that defenses have to worry about. And it's been clear the last two weeks, the guy who misses the most is Stefan Diggs. He's got 94 yards in the last two weeks. So good for Beasley for stepping up. But that, I guess that's what I liked about, their pass offense yesterday that and the fact that he did go over 300 yards which used to be an impossibility for every bills quarterback for 20 years running yeah i think you know the same way you could point to the two dropped interceptions you could point to tyler croft tripping over himself on what could have been a touchdown you could point to a barely illegal formation that that wiped out a touchdown you know so the almost interceptions, there were some, you know, plays that could have resulted in touchdowns. I think the bar is, is kind of the problem for me. It's like, Oh, Josh Allen was Dude. so patient. Uh, he, he took, you know, what he took, what, you know, the defense gave him, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't blow the game and it's like, great job. He he's, he's showing all this discipline. Uh, I think this, the stat that concerns me the most about this offense in the first four weeks, Josh Allen was 21 for 27 for 585 yards on passes that traveled 15 yards or more in the air. In the last three weeks, he's five for 20 for 110 yards. So it's that part of the game is gone. It it was almost like in the first month of the season, teams were like, well, this guy sucked throwing the ball deep last year. So let's just see if he can beat us over the top. And when he did, they said, all right, now we have to play defense this way. And the way teams are doing it is they're saying, okay, put together a 10 play drive. You'll screw up at some point. It may not be on this drive. It'll be the next drive or, or two drives from now, but you will screw up. That's what happened against Tennessee. Uh, and, you know, it, certainly against Kansas City, it, it had the offense stuck in neutral for most of the game. So, yeah, I think the fact that he, you know, was smart and disciplined is kind of a, a bonus, but 
he threw two passes that should have been intercepted in the first half. So if those get caught, it's a completely, nobody's talking about how disciplined and patient and smart he was because those were dumb throws. Um, so yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, it's a low bar to say like, Oh, he had 300 yards. He attempted 43 passes. Uh, you better get to 300 yards when you attempt 43 passes. But that deep passing stat, the sales point shows how much they're missing John Brown. It's not just the deep receptions that he makes. He's the speed guy that brings the safeties back, opens things up. And you're seeing Gabriel Davis has been excellent for a rookie, but you're seeing in his place, he's not the deep receiver that opens things up to the other people in the passing game as well as John Brown does. But Stephon Diggs is arguably, you know, from a you know production standpoint, the best deep receiver in the NFL over the last few years. And I guess the the point I would make is, yes, yeah, are they missing John Brown? Of course. Um, you know, he's a really good player. He, I think he was a legit number one receiver for them last year. But if your quarterback needs four excellent receivers and the perfect game plan where guys are being schemed open and everything's working off, you know, each other perfectly and the reads are defined and he doesn't have to, you know, read the defense and everything else. If he needs all that to, for this thing to work, it's not going to work when it matters. I think if you need John Brown that badly, that's a flaw in either your quarterback, your offensive system, your team, your passing game, whatever you want to say, John Brown's a good player. He's not Randy Moss. Um, you know, you still have Stefan Diggs, who is the guy that they moved heaven and earth to get. He's, he's the guy that has been a, an extremely productive deep receiver, a guy that has been the go-to guy in this passing game you should be able to live without your number two receiver for a few weeks, especially when you have a pretty good rookie in Gabriel Davis and another, and an, ex, an excellent slot receiver in Cole Beasley. So yeah, like if one guy being out eliminates your entire deep passing game, then that's a quarterback problem. I think. Sal, uh, we've seen a lot of five and two bills teams in the past uh, that don't pan out. Uh, what, gives you optimism, which I know is a strange question for you to get. Um, Very but, optimistic uh, guy. He's yes. Uh, but I'm what, what is that you are today? <laughs> Jesus. What a Debbie Downer you've been for 20 minutes here. Well, you, you bring it out in me. What can I say? <laughs> what, what has you, uh, what has you optimistic about the bills? If anything, I don't want to put, I don't want to force you into saying, you know what, but, I mean, is it okay? I guess, I don't know. I guess back to circling back to the, uh, the, the question that I kind of started off with is, is it okay just to win the division and, and maybe win a playoff game? What do they have to do for this to be a successful season? And what do you see on this roster and in trends that, that, that makes you think that they can get there? Yeah, I, I don't think anything's changed. I mean, we all thought that they should win the division this year and especially the way they started I think we've, we all felt that this is a team that could go win a playoff game or two. I don't feel like that anymore. I, I really don't. I mean, this, the way they've played the last three weeks has kind of sucked the life out of the start that they had. And I, I look at the team and I look at the schedule, which quite frankly, I just think it's a, it's a tough, tough schedule. I don't think they're in that elite category. The, the Chiefs and Titans clearly prove that the Bills are not at that level. And I know, as I said earlier, just damn well. I think the Steelers are going to just maim them in that game. I think the Steelers are the best team. Well, they're obviously undefeated, but they're the best team in football as far as I'm concerned. So maim them. That's got to, that's got to be illegal. Well, maybe, <laughs> but I, I don't think this Bills team is going to do much, make much noise in the playoffs. I, I I've been. I, I, what's happened in the last three weeks has kind of been illuminating. They're not at that level. So yeah, the AFC East is kind of down this year. They should win it but I'm not expecting them to be playing very deep into January. Well, for those who are listening, not at their computer, haven't had the ability to call up the schedule. Let's for the record, uh, uh, roll it out right now. Uh, they, the bills play the new England Patriots. It's a home game on Sunday, you know, and just briefly, I, I don't want to get too much onto a, well, we can, we can do a Patriots preview, but Cam Newton, since he came back from COVID and good friend of the show, uh, Scooter Vertino pointed out, uh, that when guys come back from the COVID lists, it's almost like they're coming back from an ankle injury. And it's like, okay, they're back. They're healed. Maybe Cam Newton's having some problems. He's a totally different quarterback post-COVID than, than he was pre-COVID. 
So who knows, uh, you know, what he's maybe dealing with uh, there. Uh, Jarrett Stidham, maybe he's the quarterback on Sunday, although Bill Belichick has said that Cam Newton's still the starter. Um, it looks like a game that the Bills should win based on what we've seen from the Patriots. But then from there, it's Seattle. Then it's Arizona. Hey, anybody watch the game Sunday night uh, and have a have it in your mind that, oh, the Bills play each of these two teams in the next three weeks uh, against the Bills defense as it's been presented? Uh, <laughs> look out. Uh, and then it's the bye week, Los Angeles Chargers at San Francisco, Pittsburgh, and then they finally get a breather. And I'm not counting New England being a breather uh, because it is New England. There is, you know, it's a division game. It is Bill Belichick. He does find ways to shore things up and make it, you know, if he needs to win one game, uh, he has, has the ability to do that. But then it's at Denver. It is, you know, late in the season. It's Denver. It's high altitude. Who knows how the Bills are going to handle that or what the team or the league's even going to look like by December with the schedule being rearranged and all that crap. Um, and then it's at new England and then they finish with Miami. Uh, so yeah, that is, especially for the next one, two, three, five, seven, eight weeks. It is a brutal schedule. Yeah, that's what I, we, and we all pointed to this. We knew they needed to get off to a good start and six and two, if they can beat the Patriots certainly constitutes a good start. Now, if it's going to be enough, it should be enough you know, you, you hope they could split the last eight and get to 10 wins. I think they maybe could do that, but I could see it going the other way, guys. And you mentioned, Tim, you and I have been in this market for a long, long time. These dudes weren't even born when the Bills were going to Super Bowls. I don't know about LeBron. I know Matthew wasn't. And we've, and since then, we've seen a lot of good Bills teams that we thought were good. We see, we've seen a lot of teams we thought were good, started well, and just went right in the shitter. Right. It's happened too many times in Buffalo. And I, I was starting to get the sense in the first half yesterday, that's where this team was headed. Right. That first half was brutal. And I'm thinking if they go to if they lose to this team, this is going to be 08 and 11 all over again for the Bills. Yeah. Go way back. Oh, go ahead, Jonah. Well, I wanted to ask you know, if you go way back before, you know, me and Matt were born. I don't know about you guys, but to one of the seasons in your book sale, 1975, the Bills start four and oh, they get to five and two. It's yep. a team that, as you wrote, believed it could win the Super Bowl, go to the Super Bowl that year, and things fell off the wagon in the second half of the season. Are there any it's – it's a long stretch to maybe compare two teams from 45 years apart, but do you see any parallels in the way those seasons are going? Um, well, yeah. I mean, obviously, with the record and the way it ended, I don't think the Bills are going to go in the tank that badly. But, you know, that was a team that was – you know, that was an OJ team, and that was pretty much their offense. Joe Ferguson was, at that point in his career, still trying to figure it out. He was just handing off and their defense wasn't that good. I mean, they took advantage of an early schedule that was pretty, pretty conducive to winning. And then they hit the, they hit the skids and it was, you know, they went off the rails. The team to me though, is that 08 team, right? I mean, that was a team. Everyone was so excited about Trent Edwards. Oh man, he was finally going to be the guy we knew Lostman sucked first round blowout. And here comes Trent Edwards, right? He was so efficient. They're four and oh, and holy smokes. I mean, what a, what a travesty that turned out to be. And then 11 with Fitz, another team that looked like on paper, the way they were playing, man, they're going to do something. And then it just falls off the rails. It's, they, they, have, they have broken hearts in Buffalo for so long. And this team has got that in them, right? This current team has that in them to really, really break this fan base's heart, uh, heart this year. And what's going on in the world also is an outside influence that can't really be accounted for because – uh, you can look at the Bills and say, all right, they're going to figure it out. Um, maybe the trade deadline, something happens. Um, you know, Josh Allen and Brian Dable get back on track uh, like they were through the first four games of the season. But if there's another COVID incident like they had with the tight end room with their offensive line, for instance, like Las Vegas experienced this, uh, this past week, or – a scheduling snafu where another team has an outbreak like Tennessee did and games have to be rescheduled. And now the bills are playing two games and six nights on a, on a regular basis, or who knows what uh, their bye week gets moved. Um, there are all kinds of things that could really torpedo uh, their, their development. And I'm not saying their season, like, Oh, uh, they're not going to make the playoffs, but if you had hopes of the Bills being a Super Bowl contender, which I think a good chunk of the fan base did a month into the season, there are so many things uh, 
not that are outside the bill's control that can ruin it, let alone the things that are within their control that seem to be falling apart. So uh, this is, I don't think we can make any assumptions that everything's going to be fine. Uh, there's just way too many variables. Yeah, I think, you know, in some ways, the weirdness of this season and not knowing what the hell's going to happen with COVID and everything else almost leaves the door open for the Bills to to make that type of run because who knows what could happen. I think the first month of the season was so strange that the Bills were sort of well-equipped to take advantage of it. But I'm with you in that I don't think you can just – one of the assumptions that seems wrong is that when everything was going on with the Titans and everything that – you know everything was kind of hitting the fan with COVID people were like, well, the bills are lucky to have, you know, Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean steering the ship. And I'm not saying they're not, you know, I'm not saying those guys are incompetent, just saying it doesn't matter. Like COVID does COVID is not afraid of Sean McDermott. Like he's not like, Oh man, we're not coming into that building. That guy, he's tough. He wears camo. He I'm scared of him. Like, no, like, they got a, They got the virus into their tight end room the same way Tennessee got it, uh, you know, in however it got into their building. And th- I also don't think they necessarily handled the, the last three weeks like completely perfectly, right? Like all these interruptions and schedule changes that everybody said, well, uh, McDermott will have them ready. They weren't ready against the Titans. They got blown out. Uh, they show up against the Chiefs on – they, if I hear them reference a short week one more time, uh, all they talk about is all these short weeks they've had uh, when they really had a long week. Uh, but they're not the making Titans. any excuses. Right. They're not making any excuses, but it'll be great to have a, a regular week. Or, you know, we're not making any excuses, but X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, we're not making any excuses, but we really let them have those 250 rushing yards. Uh, like, I don't know that the, the mental state of the team was perfect these last three weeks. And how could it be? It was a weird three weeks, but that, you know, leaves it, leaves some stuff up in the air. They were thrilled to win yesterday, which, Hey, it's hard to win in the national football league as we hear all the time. But I, I feel like other teams having been in other locker rooms, having been in the Ravens locker room last year, that was a team that expected to win games and was, was pissed when they didn't, you know, knock people's teeth out. And, Yesterday, the Bills were like beyond thrilled to have gotten a win because it's so hard to win in the National Football League. Well, it's pretty easy to win when you play the, the Jets, or it should be easy, or it should occasionally look easy, and it just hasn't looked easy enough, I think, often enough um, for this team each of the last two years. I think it's important to note that maybe the margin of error is higher for them this year, for, for any team really, but especially the Bills. New England being down, the division is more winnable than it's ever been and an extra wildcard team makes the playoffs. So the Bills don't need to be quite as good as they would have needed to be in any of the past 20 years to make the playoffs. No, they'll, I think they'll make it. Uh, like, I, I definitely think they're making the playoffs. I think they'll probably win the division. I think it would kind of be a screw-up if they didn't win the division. I, we'll learn more this weekend. They have to beat the Patriots uh, to really solidify that. But if you're 6-2 and two, and the Patriots are two and five. And the only thing standing between you and the division is a team with a rookie quarterback that you've already beaten. I feel like you better win the division. Um, it's the question is, is what Tim kind of kicked off the show with is even if they win the division, are they favored against whoever they're playing? Uh, do they win that game? And, and what constitutes improvement or a success on this season that when, especially when it started the way it did and, you know, things were kind of going well for them, you know, winning the division and making the playoffs is, is one thing, but the Texans won a lot of divisions, uh, you know, and, and never really got. And how often are Bill the bills going to have, or for, for what are the odds of the bills getting a home game in the, in the playoffs? I mean, obviously you win the division that, that helps your cause just by virtue of winning your division. But to Sal's point, the schedule is so raggedy, uh, Nah, raggedy is not the right word. Rugged, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. This the schedule. The schedule's so tough that the idea, you know, they they win the division at nine and seven. Maybe they win comfortably at nine and seven, but that's not going to get them too far with home field advantage in, into the postseason when there's teams with 10, 11, 12 wins. Well, you know, in terms of home field advantage, though, Tim, who has it? Nobody has it, right? There's not going to be a stadium in the NFL, I don't think, that's going to be full capacity at any point. This maybe the Super Bowl. 
but nothing before that. So what's the mostly? Difference? It's a travel issue, I guess. It's well, about what if they, you have to travel. What if they do playoff bubbles? I, I don't know if they would do that, but what if they say, "All right, now that we're in the playoffs, let's find a few bubbles and make this happen." You know, I, the home playoff game doesn't have the same uh, allure that it had. Um, you know, when Brandon Bean talked about it in the off season, because an empty Bills stadium uh, isn't quite quite the same. What, what if what if Buffalo is a bubble because uh, of its Major League Baseball? It's already had its dry run, and then <laughs> I they're going to put a bubble in January in Buffalo. I seriously doubt that's happening. Yeah, like, where are they going to practice? Erie County Community College or uh, UB Cleveland Hill High School? Hey, I guess they, they could go to UB. Home field advantage so much too. The Bills were four and four at home last year with full crowds every week. Right? They were six and two on the road. So I don't know that home field. Everyone says it's such a big deal for the bills. I don't know. It hasn't been that big of a deal for the bills. And this year they've already lost once at home, right? They lost to the chiefs. They won. What are they? Two and one at home right now, Matthew. Or three yeah. And two and one. They beat the Rams and the jets and they lost to the chiefs. So, I mean, home field advantage this year. I don't think it means squat because there's not going to be any full stadium. So I'm not going to use that as a. Well, they, I, I feel like they also need to get through this latest um, little scare they had on Saturday uh, because we saw it go sideways with other teams and they seem to have identified the close contacts with, with Dawson Knox and it's mostly isolated to the tight end room at this point. But you see a positive test kind of slide in on, on a Saturday you know, could pop up, you know, they're not out of the woods uh, on the whole, whole COVID situation either. So I don't know. Well, that, that's something that probably is more pressing than any other issue facing this team right now is making sure they don't have any more positive tests pop up, which is a lot of it's out of their control, but who knows who Dawson Knox was hanging out with when he didn't have his contact tracer on, they don't bring those things home. So what was the deal with, uh, I understand why cross wasn't there what was reggie gilliam doing i think he he bounced he bounces between the tight end and the running back room and special teams stuff so he's not really a predominantly a a tight end uh guy and so uh, presumably the within six feet thing you know he never came within six feet of of dawson knox but who who else did away from the facility. I don't know. Um, maybe nobody, but maybe somebody else. And I don't know. It, it, even Mitch Morse yesterday was just like, you know, we got to trust the league and all these protocols and whatever else. But he's like, I guess we'll find out in the, in the coming days. And it's like, that's a weird headspace to be in um, while you're traveling to play games and um, trying to practice during the week. And Mitch Morse has a little one at home, you know, Tyler Croft uh, now does. And it's yeah, it's it, they're not out of the woods and it may not be, you know, all these teams, it may not be the last one. Like Tim mentioned, maybe the schedule gets screwed up, maybe more things happen. So that was kind of the, the reality I think that got forgotten in a little Saturday afternoon news dump. Um, you know, it was easy to get swept under the rug, but it's, you know, we'll see a lot of teams have had just one or two positive tests, but, um, we don't really know how that's going to go. There's no way to guess. And there's nothing the bills can really do at this point, other than follow the protocols. And even if there is no transmission from this Dawson Knox case to other teammates right now, I think that bubble's been popped a little bit that I think people around here maybe thought the bills and Western New York was isolated, that COVID has come and gone in New York state. The numbers are lower here than they are in most other States elsewhere, but it goes to show that even with that, a player can contract, the disease or the virus in the community and that the protocols that the bills are following. And I would think they are doing as good of a job as maybe any team, but that's not protecting a player can still catch it. And a player could still pass it off to many of his teammates, even if the bills do everything right. And the community is doing what it's doing and the numbers are low, this still could happen. And as the numbers tick a little bit higher, it maybe has an increased likelihood of happening over the next couple months. Yeah, I have little doubt that Sean McDermott and, you know, Brandon Bean and everybody over there will do, you know, follow this thing to the letter of the law if for no other reason than, um, as Tim has written about, they've got a pretty good season to protect um, from all these outside influences. I think that's the number one motivator of taking this thing seriously is not ending up like the Titans where you have postponed games and a screwed up schedule. So I, I definitely think they're doing everything 
they possibly can. But I think this weekend was just a reminder that that's not how the, the virus doesn't really care how prepared you are or how um, closely you follow the protocols. Cause you're not in a bubble and you're not, um, you know, immune to this thing. So uh, the fact that it can get in there, yeah, it's a little bit of a, I'm sure a little bit of a scare for the guys in the building, um, you know, some more than others, but um, you know, it's, it's a reminder that there's only so much you can do to keep this thing out. The bills are doing the bills and every other team aren't doing enough because why is it after every single game, these two teams, all two teams in every game are coming together, sharing hugs and this, and why is that being allowed? You're doing all you can in your own building to keep it out. And now you go and go hug the guy across the way after the game, no masks on. You don't know what's going on in there. But to me, that the NFL has dropped the ball on that. I get sportsmanship. I asked McDermott that question a couple of weeks ago. He said he would consider not going over and shaking the opposing coach's hand. But I think he's done it in every game. He did it yesterday. Okay. I mean, I, I don't get that. I mean, it's, maybe it's a nitpick, but – Stop doing that. <laughs> stop. If you're trying to protect your building, stop doing that. That's just dumb to me. But every team has done it, so. I agree. It's it's hey, You know, Sal, there's been something I've been meaning to uh, tell you, or at least make sure that you knew about. Um, Shampo Travis Bison and Kirshner is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with Roots and Amherst. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client. For assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on acquisitions and mergers, CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces, Sal. Mm. For consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, Sal, that's 716-630-2400. Shampo, Travis, Besaw, and Kirshner. Over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Uh, well, as, I, as I continue to build the Mayorana media empire, I will definitely keep them in mind. Well, I do want to say that this is, I mean, what is the name of your, do you have like um, a doing business as for your books and all that stuff? Do you have a, a, a Mayorana Inc. or anything like that? Well, I use Mayor, Mayorana Media as, as a, a thing that I will use down the road for publishing stuff, but it's not really an active type of thing. It's okay. You know, I so started my website. I started my website and I'll do things on there in the future. I can't do anything but write about history right now because I have a full-time job and they don't permit me to put, you know, anything current or especially bill stuff. But down the road, it'll be mayor on a media and, you know, I will kick off the next portion of my life as an old fat 60-year-old dude. When mayor on a media wants to acquire Bronstein Consolidated, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at Sale Mayorana Publications here in this book on my desk. So I'm thinking you could publish my novel. All right. Well, there you go. Oh, well, contact CTBK for that acquisition. Uh, or if you want to merge and maybe make it Mayorana Bronstein, Inc., you know, CTBK will be able to shepherd you through that transition and uh, your businesses. Uh, tell us about your history website, Sal. You, it's a passion of yours. I know you enjoy it. You're not doing it for the money. Um, but there's a lot of fun stuff on there. Yeah, I, I do. I, so it's always been my kind of my hobby, especially now that I can't play golf anymore. Thanks to my shoulder, got nothing better to do with myself. So I love writing about history and all sports history is just a passion. So I started the website several years ago and then this summer I transitioned it over to this mighty networks thing, which I was turned on to by a buddy of mine. So I'm just putting up my history stories and doing ongoing series about different things. And it's been fun. It's a different type of writing. And at some point, you know, when my DNC days are over, I hope to transition and make that a subscriber type of um, website, not only for history, but I would hope to cover the bills. I've got, I've got the assurance from the bills that I'll still have a press credential if I no longer work for the, uh, the DNC, if I work on my own. So that's a good thing. So I'll continue to cover the bills as long as I can. And hopefully that will be the home at some point for, for that coverage. So there you go. There's my plug. It's free right now, but I would like to make it a subscriber. Uh, like I said, once my, this career is over. Well, I'll make sure to include a link too with uh, when we tweet out this uh, podcast. 
before we wrap up, Sal, uh, thoughts on the World Series? Uh, Dodgers are up three games to two. Um, and I guess more so than a matchup uh, thoughts, uh, what are your thoughts on just these trends that we've seen in the postseason? All the pitching changes, uh, clearly the numbers uh, back these types of maneuvers, but it really is you know, change, changing the way, the feel of the game. Um, I don't know. What, what, are your, what are your thoughts on what we've been seeing in, in the postseason, even going back to when your beloved Yankees were still alive, all the trends we've seen? I've been very clear on Twitter. I hate it. <laughs> I, I think this generation of GMs, managers, coaches, players has ruined the game. There's, there's no turning back now. It's not going to change. But this is not the baseball that you and I grew up with, for sure. And I understand time moves on. Analytics are a part of it. But it just doesn't make sense to me the way the game is played. This launch angle, baloney, you know, strikeout or home run. It's the game just it, the game just sucks to watch. It takes three and a half to four hours to play a baseball game in August, let alone in the World Series, right? I mean, so I don't like anything about it. All the pitching changes. The other night, I haven't watched much of the World Series for all these reasons. I don't care about either team, and I don't have – I don't have it in me to be up at 1230 every night watching baseball. I'm too old for that. So I haven't watched much of it, but I was watching one of the games that it was the game where Dave Roberts kept changing pitches mid inning for like three innings in a row, just dragging and sucking the life out of the game. And I just don't like it. I hate it. I wish they would go back to let your starting pitchers pitch every five days and give it all they've got. And then use your bullpen rather than pitching eight different guys every night. I'll never understand why a manager thinks that eight guys are going to be on in every single game, right? Like somebody is going to yeah. screw up. So why do you roll the dice like that every night? Like these guys do it. Does, I don't get it. I really don't get that. So you know, it's funny though, to hear you say, you know, can we get back to the old days of your starter going every five days? But when we were younger, we would hear people say, yeah, whatever happened to the four man rotation and complete games. And, you know, so we're, we're becoming our fathers and our grandfathers, but this is pretty radical what we've been seeing, I think. Um, your, your thoughts on shifts, uh, because I don't like the shifts in general, uh, but then my whole thought is you got to hit it. You got to hit it the other way. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm not so much opposed to the defensive strategy. You're trying to prevent runs, but I also think that you can maybe modify things like, you know, a lot, there was a lot of talk about if you're going to shift, then everybody who shifted has to at least have a foot on the infield. You can't put the guy in the softball rover position out in, you know, right center field. That to me is, I think that's lousy. So at least maybe modify the shift. Maybe one guy has to be at least on second base and, you know, can't go over to the other side of second base, stay up the middle, maybe shift, you know, limit it that way, but I'm not totally opposed to shifting, but I wish they would maybe bring in some rules that would make it less radical and give, le especially left-handed batters. They're the ones that get killed. It isn't so much the righties. It's the lefties that are really getting killed by this. And then that is also fostered the launch angle, right? If there's so many dudes on the right side of the infield and in the outfield, they're just trying to hit it over. And that just leads to repeated strikeouts of the ball not being in play and the game just sucks. It just sucks. I, I tweeted the other day of the four major sports, baseball is the one that has been hurt the most by analytics. The other games have moved on and they're played in a pretty similar fashion. Baseball has changed radically. The game is played entirely different than the way it used to play even 20 years ago. It's a yeah. Baseball is probably the sport where the analytics give you the most advantage, which is probably why it's changed the most. There's so much that you can measure in baseball and, you know, have actionable, um, you know, things that you can change about how you do it. I would, I've gotten a little bit more into baseball this year after kind of taking an extended break from it for a variety of reasons. But I think two simple things, I don't know if they would do it, but it's the two things you guys are talking about. Limit the amount of pitching changes you can make in a game, unless there's injuries. You know, if guys keep getting hurt, you can obviously switch guys in and like, like in any other sport, kind of give guys a position, right? If a guy's a second baseman, you say he can be between here and here. Uh, he can't be out in, you know, center field or whatever the hell it is. I mean, if guys have positions, they should have to be in a certain spot on the field. And I think that would eliminate something. I don't know if they'll ever do it, um, but 
it's it has certainly made it strange. I think more than anything, it's the pitching stuff that kind of kind of bothers me because it's just constant with the interruptions and slowing things down. And it's like, man, like I yeah, I miss the days of a guy throwing seven scoreless and you know walking out and handing it over to the setup man instead of the setup man coming in in the fourth inning for crying out loud. And, and the pace of play is is so awful. There's a there's a Twitter thing. I Pitching think clock that would be good too. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's a there's a there's a Twitter feed. I think it's like random at bats of the '90s or '80s or something. And this guy just posts random at bats. Right. The other day there was one up there. Game five of the ALCS in 86, the famous Dave Henderson home run game, right? So Mike Witt is pitching for the Angels. Now, this is a playoff game, a big game. He shows this clip to – Dwight Evans was the batter. Mike Witt threw four pitches in 35 seconds. And, he get, and one of those was a foul ball, which usually takes a little more time, right? Foul ball, and then he ends up flying out in the fourth pitch. Four pitches in 35 seconds – you don't see one pitch most nights in 35 seconds these days. There's where the game has gone off the rails. Every one of these players has their process and their mental gymnastics that they go through on every pitch, fix the glove. It's just so maddening to watch this game. At least football's got a 40-second play clock. You know there's going to be stuff happening. In baseball, it just goes on and on and on. It's, it's insane. It's horrible. Horrible. A friend, a friend of mine earlier. proposed – Go ahead, Jonah. Well, I mean, you said earlier, Sale, there's no going back. So do you think that MLB will make any of these rule changes or will anything be adjusted to make this game more about the spectators and the entertainment of the sport and less a managing contest as the years go by? Well, they've already tried the three batter minimum for pitchers, and that really hasn't done anything. I mean, Dave Roberts is still changing guys in mid-inning. Um, the pitcher's clock or the pitching clock, it's worked okay in the minors. I mean, we have a triple – you guys have a triple-A team there. I've been to games. Seems to keep the game going. But minor league – the difference is minor league games aren't nearly as intense as major league games. So even with a pitcher's clock, I don't know that it's going to make that much of a difference in, in major league baseball. The shifting rule, who knows? The biggest problem is the way these guys play the game. That's where – I mean, the pace of the game is on the players. You know, every pitch. Why – there's nobody on base, one out – why is the pitcher need 12 seconds to get the sign from the catcher? Like, why is this dude staring at the catcher's crotch for 12 seconds? Put the finger down, throw the goddamn pitch. But every night it doesn't go that way. And then when you get guys on base, then it really gets out of hand, right? It's just the game is broken. And I just, I don't know if they can fix it. I really don't know they can, they can fix it. A friend of mine proposed a 12 second pitch clock. And I, when he said it, I was like, you're out of your mind, like 12 seconds. That's not nearly enough. Uh, guys, you know, need to get the ball back. And he's like, then we kind of timed it out, you know, and he's like, ball hits the catcher's mitt clock starts, throw it back. And it was like, we timed it out. And it's like, yeah, tw 12 is 12 is pretty good. Like yeah. it, a guy can conceivably just get the ball, stand on the mound and get going uh, get the pitch and get going. Maybe you go 15, but like that would be dramatically different. You got guys averaging what somewhere between 25 and 35 seconds, a pitch, uh, in between pitches. And that's just time melting away from all of our lives. It's just that thing too I much. the other day that, that Mike Witt, Dwight Evans at bat, Mike Witt throws the pitch. He is literally, he finishes follow through and he is going back to the rubber as the catcher is throwing the ball back. So he's already on, he's catching the ball and he's already back on the rubber, ready to make the next pitch. The sign goes down, he throws it. The, and Dwight Evans in the box never leaves the box. I think he took two pitches, fouled one off, even after the foul ball. He doesn't go for the stroll out, you know, to regather his thoughts and fix his cup and do everything else. He stays in the box and Witt throws the fourth pitch. He swings, it's a fly ball, 35 seconds to throw four pitches. A lot of crotch talk here. At the that end. would say it's an advantage. You know, maybe the maybe the batter would be out of sorts if you if you moved faster. Maybe there's an analytic that could, could steer the game back in that direction. It's like, hey, if you pitch quicker, the the batter is going to lose his mind because he doesn't know how to handle it. I don't know. Could be. Yeah, maybe it needs to be a batter's pitch clock too because you can't get out of the if you don't get readjusted and back in the box fast enough, then here comes the pitch. 
And if you're not ready to swing at it, then tough. That's well, how it was in Little already, League. They've already taken the 25 seconds. They're ready to go. And then the batter says, whoop, timeout. Steps yeah. out and we got to go through the whole thing again. And that's another thing too. The timeout in baseball. I the mean, mound I, I, visits. I the remember. mound visits. Give me a break. I can't remember growing up, Tim. Again, you were, you and I are pretty close in age. Where these batters took all these timeouts. Like, just stay in there and and get ready for the pitch. Well, you remember Mike Hargrove, the human rain delay. Well, he was brutal, but he was the exception, Tim. Yeah, there were very few guys like that. These guys were all in there. They, they're ready to go. Throw the damn ball. I'll swing at it. Let's play the game. And it's just not that way anymore. It's just, I don't know. And again, it's all because of all these guys. To me, I think one of the biggest problems is they've all specified a sport, right? They're all playing a, they're all playing baseball only. And they've got all these coaches and these mental guys, you know, you need to do this and be ready. And here's your process and go through this checklist. No, get in the damn box and play the game. That's that would help baseball a whole lot. There. Are they milking their TV time? Off. I wonder if they're trying to just get on TV. Like NBA players sometimes take an extra couple seconds at the free throw line because they know the camera's focused on them. Yeah. These MLB guys seem like they want to show off their jewelry and their gloves and their stance and their gear in between every pitch. It's my there is a lot. Game. There is a lot of that my favorite game and they've just they've trashed it it's really a shame i mean the yankees are the worst too i'm a huge yankee fan as you know they're as bad as any team every one of their games is a long laborious marathon even in a game in june against the friggin mariners takes three and a half hours because they play that way they are one of the teams that are the biggest culprits of all this crap so i don't know what can i tell you and to your, yeah, to your point, Jonah, as somebody, you know, I watch the Indians games during the season and it's actually a commercial on Sports Time Ohio, which has the Indians games. Fran Mil Reyes talks about his swag and it's like they, it's one of those promo commercials to get you to watch the Indians and it's his process in the plate. And it's exactly right. And it's like, I got to look good for the camera and he's got this thing, you know, whatever he's got dangling here and, um, yeah, so you're right. It's not just like, hey, I wonder if they do that. There's actual, at least it's in like Cleveland, the red there's local commercials about, you know, about how they, their star player does it. Yeah. Well, Sal, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast. Uh, Want to tell everybody to, to follow Sal at salmayorana.com. Uh, I will uh, be tweeting that out uh, with the podcast link. And, uh, and of course, follow him on Twitter. Uh, which I'm sure everybody on here uh, or anybody who's listening uh, already does. Um, Sal, I can't thank you enough for coming on, giving your thoughts on the bills and, um, and baseball. Anything we missed? One more plug in the book. Yeah, I, I want to highly recommend sales book, not just because he's on the podcast and it's topical, but I read this over the summer, especially the Buffalo Braves chapter and thought it was a lot of fun. It, really all of the chapters. I didn't know a lot about Buffalo sports in the seventies other than kind of the top line things. And it was a lot of fun learning all that history and detail of all three teams in that mid seventies era. Let me ask you this, Sal. Um, I'm going to, if I'm going to go on Amazon and buy five Sal Mayorana books <laughs> today, which okay. I, I'll do it. I'll do it. Don't think I won't. Which, which five should I buy? Oh boy. Um, well, the new one for sure. Uh, well, my favorite, my favorite book that I've written was the 1968 book, which is the one that I'm, I've been republishing chapter by chapter on my, on my historical web. fiction, right? Historical fiction that I really enjoyed doing that because that was beyond sports. It was everything 1968. So I really loved doing that book. My book, A Lifetime of Yankee Octobers was another one where I created a fictional character who took you through the first 27 Yankee World Series championship teams. Um, he started off as a little bat boy in the 20s with Babe Ruth and went on to be a, a journalist and then was a confidant of Joe Torre when he was 80 something. So I really enjoyed writing that book too. So those are probably my three uh, favorite books that I've done. As far as the other two, Matthew, whatever floats your boat. There's a golf book, there's a couple of golf books, a few Sabres books out there. I've got this Oak Hill one in my cart. Got a couple Oak Hill books. So yeah, you've got, there's a, pretty wide variety of stuff you could choose from, but those are my three favorites. I think that I've done. Going to contribute to books. Sal's early retirement. <laughs> yeah. 
It'll pay for a couple. If we just flood Amazon with everybody purchasing Sal Mayorana books, he can get to work on that history website. Yeah. <laughs> Author of 22 books so far. So far, yes. Sal Mayorana of the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. Uh, thanks for joining us on uh, Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. And also uh, a quick shout out again and a thank you to uh, Danny Fraunhofer for the theme music. Uh, the title track uh, or the title of this one is A Spirit. And you can also uh, check his work uh, with Adam Bronstein, brother of our Jonah Bronstein uh, in the band Intrepid Travelers. So my thanks again to Danny Fraunhofer. Uh, Sal Mayorana, Matthew sure. Fairburn, Jonah Bronstein. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Oh, 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 oh,